Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague. I hope you've all been well since last we spoke. I think, Michael, there's, there's many things going on, but we really have to focus on the question which is on everyone's lips, that everyone is asking. Yes. And it's this, Michael, as determined by the, uh, the Independent and you, O'Connell. Mm-hmm. Why is Simon Harris so fantastically popular? That's a bit like saying, why do people like ice cream, Gary? It's not, it's not one reason. There's so many reasons. He's just super. He's super great, fantastic. I just, I mean, I just can't get enough of him. We could, we could say many positive things about Simon, but I think we'll, we'll let the, we'll, we'll quote from the Sunday Independent, so you can see that they have properly put this man in the position he should be in, and then we'll talk about some things about Simon Harris that naysayers might say, but not us. No, not us. So the article, which is in the uh, the Sunday Independent, and which we will link to in the uh, in the episode description, and it's important that readers, readers, and listeners should understand the Sunday Independent is it is an independently owned newspaper. It's not actually a government publication. It's not. Although the article was written by Hugh O'Connell, who does need to develop some new senior Finnegale sources. Poor old case. Poor old case. Great loss. But anyway, the the. The article starts, Simon Harris's popularity has soared, but the handling of COVID-19 in our nursing homes has drawn criticism. It actually says Simon Harris's popularity soared, which mm. I'm not sure is, is correct. But anyway, two months ago, Simon Harris was one of the most unpopular health ministers in living memory. Now children write to him, telling him they miss school, while his growing Instagram following swoons over his every word in daily video updates on the government's response to an unprecedented pandemic. As hundreds are dying from what he calls a deadly, disgusting virus, the health minister has never been more popular. Yeah. I would have spaced out those two points on the end there. They seem a bit squished together. You want more space between mass death and your popularity. Yeah. Because it does kind of make it sound like your popularity is as a result, are dependent upon the death of hundreds of people. And you uh, you may not have seen this, but I think one of the reasons for Simon Harris's popularity is that Simon Harris, I, I don't know if you saw this recent interview, Michael, where he said that uh, there were no mistakes made. He didn't believe there had been any mistakes in how the government had handled COVID-19. And I think that's the kind of, it's it's that level of uh, of aptitude is the reason why he's so popular right now. Well, no, well, obviously, it seems unlikely that mistakes were made because it seems unlikely this government or Simon would make a mistake. But, Michael, there, there, are, there are naysayers. No, no, Gary, the, there are always people, oh, probably paid for by the Russians or by Trump or some of them just mentally ill, Gary. God love them. They need care and attention. They don't need criticism. I can tell you of one naysayer who was actually involved with a government. Yes, who is that? We can prove that much. It's Dr. Marcus de Bruyne. Now, you see, I was going to say that actually one mistake was made, and that was the appointment of Dr. de Bruyne to the committee. To the Irish Medical Council? Yeah. By the Irish government? By the, because, you see, obviously he wasn't a suitable person, because he's gone and, and resigned in this fashion and, and said these things. And, you know, I, I know, Gary, you're saying it's hindsight, but obviously, you know, they should he should they should have appointed maybe a more stable person. 
I mean, you shouldn't have appointed the sort of man who would resign from the medical council, which is an eminently prestigious organization. Oh, yes. Saying that the government has made systemic failures to protect the Irish population from nursing homes. And then, I mean, other people might say things like, well, if you look at debts per million, which is debts per capita as opposed to total debts, Ireland is actually the um, ooh, ninth worst affected country in the world. Yeah, it is not great, is it? And then there would be things like, do you remember the um, the nursing homes when they when they said they were going to close to visitors and then the HSE criticised them and the chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Houlihan, came out and said that that wasn't necessary and now, oh, about 60% of all the COVID-19 deaths are in nursing homes, which is why we actually have a really high death toll, but no one you know is dead. It's because people's parents are dying. Yeah, old parents. I mean... Old parents. Almost finished. Like, you know, it's not like they're being used. Not, not current models. And you know there is someone in the HSE going, well... When we go by years of quality life, this was the best option available to us. But what's the number at the moment that we have for deaths in, or percentage-wise, the percentage of the deaths occurring in care homes? It's 60%. 60%. Now, the thing, the thing is, the observation will be made, and correctly, that the pattern globally is that they have high mortality rates in care homes. Even in Sweden, the chief, the retired chief epidemiologist who supports the current chief epidemiologist, who knew you had such a thing anyway, that there's actually a position in a country, chief epidemiologist, has said that one of the areas they dropped the ball on was, along with the immigrant communities who live in high density housing, was the care homes. Now, you say, okay, so we have high levels, but I'm just looking here at some data uh, from the International Long-Term Care Policy Network, right? And they're saying that, for example, percentage of deaths, these are global to, of COVID-related deaths in care homes. Now, you said, what was the figure for Ireland? 60%. Well, nearly 60%. Like they're showing that Norway, slightly over 30%, Australia... In the high twenties, Belgium in sort of fifty six, fifty seven, France higher over sixty percent. So we're not quite number one yet. We're not quite. Also, I mean, listen, we're we're being rather ghoulish and glib. But it's not, not glib, but ghoulish certainly. But this her the thing is from the beginning, and this is the thing that well, there are a number of things about this that make me angry, but. One of the things that raised, from the very beginning, the mantra was we have to protect our most vulnerable. When we were discussing what to close down and what to not to close down, where to, the recognition was that, you know, most people will be fine, but the most vulnerable need to be protected, right? So, okay, what, what, what's the, one of the first things you want to make sure to do is to make sure that your care homes then are properly supplied and equipped and know how to respond to it. So what do you do? The first thing you do, Gary, is you send out when you send out an order so that to suppliers so that when your care home rings up the supplier to get the PPE, to get the protective uh, gear that they need to protect their staff and to protect their their residents, they're told, actually, I'm sorry, 
we know we usually supply you, but we can't supply you anymore because we've been told we can all of our supply has to go to the state. So we're not allowed to sell this to you anymore. And then you come out and you say, well, obviously some of these care homes haven't been sufficiently prudential and provident in getting sufficient supplies of the PPE, uh, the PPE, and we can't be held responsible for that, even though you are actually singularly responsible. When you decide that you're going to poach, you're going to go out and poach nurses from these care homes. That's true. And then, I mean, you'd have people saying things like, well, the Minister for Health didn't actually look at nursing homes until the 30th of March, which was about 32 days after the virus actually arrived in Ireland. Now, there are questions that... To that when I look at these numbers that suggest themselves to the layman, and I'm perfectly willing to, to understand that these are questions that will have reasonable answers. But when we look at the the median age of deaths at different times, I mean, there, there have been days recently where the median age of those who died was 85, Gary. And then we look at the median age of people in ICUs is 60. And we are aware that we actually have avoided the much feared collapse of the health system through over through undercapacity and large numbers in fact the one of the criticisms of the government now is they're stuck still with a contract with the private hospitals where it means the private hospitals are lying empty and unused in fact all over the country hospitals are empty because people who have appointments to for normal treatments are not going in or elective treatments have been postponed you have the step-down facilities and the ancillary facilities are empty the the hotels that have been set up to deal with these things are empty and yes we don't seem it had been assumed at the very beginning of this that a large numbers of the people who would be going into the icus of which it was predicted that five percent of all cases would end up in icus and since the a disproportionate proportion of those who are going to need respiration help with respiration are going to be the elderly that we would see large numbers of elderly people in there now we haven't now we have to you know there, there is there so there is a there is a policy here that older people people from care homes are not to be brought into hospital and that may be a there may be a good clinical reason for that it may be about infection it may be that Older people who are very ill, simply moving them to this new environment might be dangerous and not representative of it. But there may be other non-clinical reasons, and I think we need to we need to be told if that is if that is the case. There was one thing I found interesting about the nursing home situation as well. Do you know up until the ninth of this month, it's currently the twenty second, so Thursday two weeks ago, if a single resident in a nursing home was tested and had COVID-19, Yes, no one else could get tested. And nursing staff were told that they should presume everyone in the facility has it. Yes. That's a bit. And that's what's still happening. Everybody in care homes... I think now, now from the 9th, they can now reapply for testing. Oh, sorry, I should, I should, I should be more precise. The instructions to everybody working in care homes is to assume is to work on the assumption that whoever you're dealing with is infected. They are now rolling out uh, tests, a large-scale testing, so that um, starting, I think, the last, today or yet possibly yesterday, there are care homes where everybody is going to be tested. Now, 
the, the backlog has been cleared, the testing is fine, and yet only I, two days ago I was talking to a, a person who had been almost a fortnight waiting for their test results and still had not had them. And to my knowledge, hasn't had them yet, in fact. It's actually for a full fortnight now. So what exactly is going on in the testing in, in the real world, I'm not exactly sure. But no, the, the, the plan now is that everybody should be tested. But there are, Gary, there are protocols uh, in place in the care homes uh, now, which are, I would say, disturbing. It's hard to know which are actual directives coming from the Department of Health or from the HSE or whether these are being decisions taken at the level of the care home itself off the off their own off the cuff I don't know but there needs to be a very serious look in how this is how this has been done they knew this was they people said that no mistakes have been made this is and also this is not hindsight this is not 50 you know 2020 vision no they were told at the time by the time it got here we actually had like if this had happened in Italy or China, yeah, that would be one thing. But we had a fairly solid idea of certain things, enough to know that this was the demographic that needed to be protected and that it would have been better to cocoon this demographic as opposed to cocoon everyone at the same time. Yeah, and right from the get-go, this is where resources should have been put in. And I, I, mean, I, I would make one mistake here. Oh, sorry, I would make one comment here. <laughs> for all day. Probably made many mistakes over time. Mistakes will happen in an evolving situation. Yes. No one will be perfect. But it's the fact that this was a foreseeable error and that now we're having some sort of bizarre love-in with the press where they're building up people's popularity and then those people are going out and saying that they don't believe the government has made a single mistake, which is bullshit. It's just nonsense. And, I mean, what we're seeing now is I'm seeing a lot of people when the when the stats are being compared and Ireland is not coming out of it terribly well. Marion Finucane was doing a, uh, an interview the other, with the, and uh, she gave a fairly, one of the most, the stiffest interviews I've seen. Uh, not Marion Finucane. Who, who do I mean? Marion Finucane's dead, isn't she? I believe she is dead, Michael. Well, that would be a first, wouldn't it? And then again, it would explain the, the stiffness of the interview. Another lady. Anyway, but there has been, yeah, the, the press have been just complaining. I mean, I, not to constantly go on about the poor chap, but the man who asked what when the zoo was going to open, really, was that oh, necessary? Oh, Bowers, or he is health correspondent. I mean, Simon Harris genuinely asked, how, how do you handle being so popular? Mm-hmm. As uh, my dear sister used to say in her youth, puke in a cup and let it set. I mean, a question you would assume was asked by someone on their knees if you couldn't see the video and see they were sitting <laughs> two metres apart. Yeah. Um, it's just, how are you so dreamy? My friend likes you. Will you go? <laughs> would you like to go for a... Would you like to go for a coffee, maybe, or like a, or like a, like a, a frappuccino or a, or an iced coffee? They make a really, you can get a really good iced coffee. Of course, can you get a good iced coffee anymore? Are all the coffee shops shut? You can get takeaway. I'm sure you can get takeaway coffee. Yeah, look, on the on the per capita numbers, I see a lot of people saying, "Well, you can't compare people because everyone, you know, everyone is measuring differently." That is and true to an extent. That is true. That is true. Uh, we are counting everybody. We are being pretty. Stiff in our counting. 
but we're not the only people who are counting everyone. And also, as most of the deaths have occurred in nursing homes, and we weren't testing everyone in nursing homes, I would be very curious to see how that's impacted upon the actual debt rate. Absolutely. And I think the other prop, the other thing is, is that when these deaths have been happening, when these affections have been occurring, because you have to look at this timeline and say, you know what, there were opportunities to aggressively introduce strong protective measures to make sure that the the staff were aware of the kinds of behaviours that they would have to be doing, the kind, the hygiene practices, the different infection practices, the barrier practices, all of these that could have been, that these numbers did not have to be as dramatically bad. And we know that they don't have to be this bad simply because there are care homes out there, Gary, where nobody is infected. And that did not happen by magic. That happened possibly a degree of luck early on in the day. But these are places that have introduced procedures and are you have been lucky enough to be able to resource the material they needed to protect both their staff and their residents. You can also... Let's take New Zealand. New Zealand got the virus at pretty much the time we did. And they have roughly the same population. Mm-hmm. Although not exactly the same. The... Actually, the population is really close. The thing that's different is it is a more spread out country, which will impact on that. But then they do still have cities. Yeah. New Zealand to date has had 13 deaths. It has a death per million rate of 2.66, or at least did on uh, earlier this morning. Still higher. Ireland has higher had 730 deaths, which is a death per million of 150.41. Yeah. New Zealand is handling this pretty much flawlessly. We're not. And the numbers are very clear on that. Regardless of differences in counting, you're not going to get that sort of difference purely from a small statistical difference. No, you're not. No, I would. There is one caveat there. I'd say that's very much what it looks like. We don't. With this virus, things can change very quickly. Singapore was doing tremendously well. Singapore was a poster boy at the beginning. And then one guy, one immigrant worker, gets ill, goes to a clinic, goes to a hospital, goes back to a hostel, goes to a shopping mall, and, you know. Now, one one thing I will say is, when you mention that to people, they tend to say, well, I mean, New Zealand is beside Australia, and we're beside the UK. As if to shift the blame basically to the UK and say, well, the UK wasn't fast and there were people coming over there from there. And that's the reason we have it. But Michael, do you remember when people started asking about travel restrictions in Ireland and the government said that they wouldn't do them because they wouldn't be effective? They're not necessary. And it's it's a central part of the European idea. But was it Pascal Donoghue? Now, I may have dreamed this because it's nonsense. Yeah. Was it Pascal Donoghue who said when he was asked if we would restrict flights to Italy, we wouldn't do that, and you should imagine how we would feel if the situations were reversed and Italy banned all travel to us. Which is to say, we can't do that because the Italians will feel bad about it. They would hurt their feelings. (laughs) Uh, By the way, 
I could pretty confidently tell you the Italians would do it so quickly it would make oh. your eyes hurt. If they I mean, talk, I, know, I know enough Italians to know. They're like, we're terribly sorry, but just down. Get the fuck away from me, plague carrier. No. Here's a uh, bell. There are certain inc- incidents where you, you look back and you think, you don't have to be, and you, in fact, you didn't have to be at the time because it's the time we said so. For example, saying, okay, the rugby match has been cancelled, but we think that there's probably going to be a few thousand Italians who are going to come over anyway because they bought the tickets and they paid for the hotel. And by the way, most Italian rugby is played in Lombardy and in Veneto, which is by a massive distance the centre of the... Uh, Outbreak, in fact, Codonia, which is where there's a big rugby town. And we said, nah, we'll let them come. Oh, that's how we know it wasn't a dream, because we talked about it specifically yeah. as being incredibly moronic. It was just one of those... And nonsensical, and just sort of... One of those funny oh, things. It was a pandemic, but I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Unfortunately, the city of Bergamo has become well-known in Ireland as a kind of a symbolic city of this, of the pandemic in Italy, and of... Terrible levels of death, where you're talking about death rates up on 10 and 10 million. What I found particularly interesting is that you've been, I assume you've been hearing the horror stories out of America. I've been hearing some of the horror stories out of America, depends which one. We're actually doing worse than America per capita. They're yes. on 137.55. Yes. We're on 150.4 what? But there we is, are actually just below Sweden. There is the hope, Gary, that the Americans will pack, will catch up and pass out, uh, be- more that because they're behind us. So you know you were. I mean, I I suppose it depends if this is like, you know, football or golf. Is it better to be in the top ten for a high score or the top ten for the low score? Um, I suspect I su- it's more like golf. I suspect it's more like golf. But I was saying about the thing about the thing about Bergamo was. We took 15 people from Bergamo. Well, we. Ryanair, I, I think it was, or some kind. The people take from, from their centre in Bergamo, brought over here for a training course, brought back, at which point they were tested. And all 15 of them were positive. And I don't think they got infected when they were, in, when they were training in Dublin. That kind of thing, you have to, I think, the decision on the, what was it, the 8th of March, 10th of March, to get by the HSE to reverse the previous instruction regarding having people visiting. Uh, and I've heard that David Quinn has been pursuing terrier-like and not being very popular as a result of it, a number of these issues. He's not waving the flag. And he he went after Dr. Holland about this. And, oh, well, we gave, yes, we, we did, but we were doing this on the basis that best practice would be Implemented. Michael, you better stop now. We'll receive a strongly worded letter from Tony Holleran that's definitely not a legal threat. Oh, well, as long as it's not a legal threat. By oh, the way, definitely I, not. Definitely <laughs> not. But actually, I think, I think you know, we are focusing too much on the negative here, uh, such as, you know, the crippling death rate that seems to be spiking upwards and the usage of statistics, uh, which actually don't mean anything. I've, I've really loved all of our daily briefing on statistics because I get people coming up to me and going, oh, the numbers are moving. Doesn't that mean something? And you go, no, not really, because they're incredibly complex models, well, which we don't have good figures to put into. So all of this, 
or is this number? And the thing you have to remember, Gary, totally is, meaningless. The, the thing that the listener has to remember is that if you take the azimuth point between the mean and the median and refer that to the exponential point of the inflection, that that is the point where you have to understand if the graph is becoming linear or is being up-flattened. And that's what I, I think is the, really, is the point that everybody needs to remember. And you don't know the actual value of any of those numbers. Well, of course, you know the values. You just guess, of, really. Yeah, you, you know the the values of FRs and zero Rs and R and then. But you, the thing is, you have to throw in as many acronyms and numbers with some decimal points. I but I know I I I legitimately love it when they announce that certain figures have moved up and down, like the amount of people infected by every infected person. But I really think what they need is a large board <laughs> and a woman, as you would see in a boxing match, holding up just a, a little piece of cardboard that says, now one, or now 0.85, because they don't matter and they're not real, because we don't know how many infected people are in the country. So we therefore cannot know how many people are being infected by each infected person. It's just a model and weirdly, while people think that the more complex a model is, the more likely it is to be correct, actually, the more complex your model is, the more likely it's to be incorrect because there's more to go wrong. And of course, if you get two or three things wrong, it gets wildly incorrect. I mean, you get one thing badly wrong. You start multiplying and do, everything. Do you remember Jon Snow? Was it Jon Snow or Peter Snow? Who used to do this thing on election nights on the, in, the, in the United Kingdom on BBC? He had a thing called the Swingometer. And if you and if the swing to either the party was three percent or four percent, he would then say, "Well, if this swing is repeated across the country, and you go to this sort of uh, sort of hologrammatic visualization of the House of Commons, and it would fill up with red seats or blue seats, depending, you know." And I, I watching these things, I think well, that's what they should have at these meetings. So today, the swing is this, and if that's if that swing is carried across the country, this many people will die. Or if this is it, this many people will recover. And it would make it far more interesting. I mean, it, but it's a wonderful PR tool because people go, oh, we're having an impact. And you might be. But the number doesn't mean that. You could... Also, I don't think the government has actually released how they're working out their modelling. I'm pretty sure it's been carried out in minute. But I'm not sure if they've actually told people how the model functions, which is to say it is a black box... And a good number comes out of it, or a bad number, <laughs> and you just you just trust the number. But anyway, the really positive news that I wanted to tell you, Michael. Yes, it's been a hard time for many countries, particularly in the Middle East, particularly Syria. But yes, they only have a COVID nineteen debt rate of zero point eighteen per million. Wow. Yeah, and of course, I have to ask, where are they on the graph, Gary? Well, I'm not sure where they are on the graph, Michael, because the uh, civil war kind of complicates the equation. Yeah, it's funny thing. Usually civil wars and that kind of stuff makes this worse. But on the other hand, if you're already shooting people... Yeah, yeah. Yeah? yeah true. Worked for North Korea. Did work very well for North Korea. That Their, their, their containment uh, process was... But, you know, I mean, you pointed out... That we are uh, not far below Sweden at this stage. Sweden, who are trying to build herd immunity in what may actually work, 
But uh, well, looks and balls. Well, herd immunity. Listen, I, please, can we, can we can we make a promise that we don't use the herd the word herd immunity without inverted commas for at least three weeks? Well, I'm not going to use the word herd immunity because it's a phrase. A hyphenated space in there, Michael. We're putting a hyphen I, in there. I would never hyphenate the words. Okay, the words herd immunity because I'm sick and of RTE misdefining God almighty Jesus we've all heard the thing so often by now we should have a but anyway my point with Sweden is according to the modelling you know this that we all love so much Stockholm hospitals should have been overwhelmed a fortnight ago and they're not now maybe they will be now, I have to say again what I said to you before, the really distasteful level of football fandom where you can hear people cheering on Sweden because they're anti-lockdown and other people, you, you can almost feel in their comments, oh yeah, but it's not over yet. It's not over yet. The virus could come back. We could see spikes in the death rate in Sweden yet. And we could. But at the moment, we have to say the, the differential between what Sweden is doing and what we're doing and what Swedes are experiencing at the level of lethality and what we're experiencing, considering the economic and damage that's been done, the art, well, not, let's not damage, because I'm, I'm sceptical up to now, but you damage me, but certainly costs, very, very significant economic costs having been incurred. I think we're going to have to have a little chat with ourselves sometime fairly soon about... Where we go next with this, because the there just is not that much difference. The difference is not big enough for the price that has been paid. No, I mean this is there have been many arguments against the lockdown. They do give us time, and they they do have a function. But uh, I was out of the house recently for a work thing. There are a lot of people out, like a lot of people out. And about and doing stuff, at least around my area. Um, way more than there would have been just, you know, when this thing started or in the first couple of weeks. And I remember when the UK said it wasn't going to go into lockdown, one of the things they said was that you, you know, lockdown fatigue. Yes. You're only going to get like a couple of weeks before people actually just start ignoring it. And people are like, no, that's ridiculous. People would never do that. Uh, I would suspect people will start doing that, are probably already doing that now, and that we don't have that long before the lockdown becomes largely ineffective without a fairly brutal uh, level of uh, police intervention. I also think if we were going to lockdown, we should have done what the French did, which is to say if you leave your house, you need to fill in a form online before every time you do it. And if you don't have that form or you don't have it on your phone, you will be uh, you will have a bit of a legal trouble when you are stopped because you will be stopped. And not to be that guy, France is three hundred and nineteen deaths per million, making it making France bringing France into the uh, the top five, top four, just outside the top three. And now Belgium has snuck up on us, though they've managed to get over. Spain and Italy while we weren't looking. Now, that is on the basis that you take San Marino and Andorra out of the picture. Otherwise, San Marino is a comfortable number one with 1,179 deaths per million. Yeah, it's not really a country, though. Is it? Well, it's kind of a country. Jesus, it must I think be if pretty horrible. To, is it a country? Is it kind of a country? Then the answer is actually no. 
Well, you see, it's a republic. Who isn't these days? <laughs> Even North Korea is a republic. And it's slightly bigger than the Vatican. And the Vatican is a country. But San Marino may be a little bit less so. It's a micro-state. It's very pretty. And it must be terrible. I mean, it, it's a very small, obviously, it's a small community. I would imagine at this stage that in San Marino, pretty well everybody knows somebody who has died. For, for those who don't know, San Marino is also in North Italy. Well, in central, north central Italy, I suppose. And very pretty. And they make, the food is good too. Well, the food is good everywhere. Belgium, really, really, really bad. Not going to Belgium anytime soon. Belgium bad, Spain bad, Italy bad. Sweden, as I said, the interesting thing about Sweden is that um, the hospitals, we haven't seen a repeat of what we've seen in Italy with the hospitals. Which is an interesting point, because the argument against lockdown was that well, high levels, hospitals would invariably collapse. It is also worth observing that the policy in Sweden was that nobody over the age of 80 would go to hospital. And anybody between the ages of 60 and 80 who had another condition would not go to hospital. And that was, I think, principally about maintaining the integrity of the health system rather probably than any clinical decision. I mean, here's the thing. You, you could look at that and you'd say, some people would say that's effectively euthanasia. They're... Uh, their debt rate per million is only 23 higher than ours. Yeah, it's lower than France, lower than the UK, lower than the Netherlands. What, about 15% more than us? I'd also be very interested to see um, what the prognosis is for people of those age, considering the some of the stuff we've heard about ventilators. But Yeah, that's what the, the, one of the points that uh, Sam made in that very interesting conversation we had with him was, of course, it's all, really the, the advantage is time, and the time gives the opportunity to learn things. We may, I don't know, not a doctor, strangely. This, I, we, when we discuss it, you, you go through that part where you have to list all the things you're not. Not a doctor, not an epidemiologist, not a virologist. But there seems, there's quite a bit of data coming out now from doctors in Italy and in the United States, a bit confused about the way the patients are presenting with the respiratory problems and suggesting that where at the beginning it was all about respirators and we needed respirators and we needed ICUs because that's where the respirators were, that in cases that respirators may be counterintegrated and actually rather than being intubated, and we have seen this, that the levels of recovery of people who have been intubated are not good, but that maybe what they need, you know, I can't remember the name of them, you know those masks people wear for apnea, uh, which provide oxygen, but it's a per- something pressure. It's like reverse pressure or something. Uh, anyway, those masks that people use for apnea give people oxygen rather than intubating. S- some doctors think may actually be more effective, and you get it. You better you get better outcomes, and that's what the kind of thing you learn when you have a, when you have time to learn. But Sweden is the Sweden. Sweden has to be looked at to see what it may be the case. And I'm going to do something. Gary hates this when you shout, give an opinion on the basis of absolute ignorance. But I have I have deleted entire podcasts because we said things that I then thought we couldn't back up. I have no way of backing this up, and I'm just thrown out purely as an opinion. I'm just okay. I'm not even. I'm going to. I'll protect myself. Not an opinion. I wonder. I wonder if at the end of all of this, we're going to discover. That the difference between mitigation, and by the way, talking to Swedes online and looking at things, the notion that Sweden is a normal life is just not true. There have been very significant changes to the way people behave 
and are socially interacting in Sweden also. Just not to the same level of control and police and policing particularly that we've seen here. But maybe that changes in behaviour regarding you know, hand washing, wearing masks, social distancing, that kind of that the bulk of the stuff, the bulk of the control you gain over the exp- over the transmission of the disease, the very large bulk happens at in the easier stuff. That those hard, hard measures that bring they say the last ten percent, fifteen percent of don't actually give you that much. That there may be a an element of diminishing returns when you start to manage this. That they, when you do the economics of it, you do the math, main that last hard 10% that we have been enduring for the last, say, three, four weeks may not actually give us the kind of benefits that we want. But that's, that's just something I'm wondering, Gary. Remember when we were talking about Britain and when they were talking about herd immunity, when I was saying it's an unusual thing for a democratic country to do. Because it doesn't matter if it works. It matters how the public and media perceive it. And in general, they will perceive it as you not doing everything you can or should, and basically just going laissez-faire, like let the purr die. It doesn't matter if it would actually be the better option. So that was why it was an unusual thing for democracy. the, The problem with the UK, as opposed to Sweden, I don't think... I think the Swedes have been much more effective in communicating to the Swedish people what they're doing. I think that this Boris lost control of the narrative his people did and it became about herd immunity. And the thing was, it was never about herd immunity. I mean this notion of herd it was a it was a it was a, it was a, a it was rather it was a more subtle, more complicated thing than that. But the big the story that got out was the narrative that became dominant was that they didn't care yeah oh, we, they don't really care about the people that are going to die, the old, the sick, the vulnerable. When in fact from the beginning this approach was based on the premise that those people would be protected, that those people would have to come out of circulation, if you like. They would have to cocoon, but that the rest of the population would would continue on in a reasonably normal manner with social distancing and all that. So I think they lost control of the, the, of the, of the narrative. It, it leaked from the cabinet that that was one of their considerations, and then they didn't want to defend it, whereas the Swedish government has been upfront in saying that this is what we are doing. This is what it will mean. It has to be this way because of these reasons. And we are comfortable defending it. Where if you're not, then it just seems like you're kind of going. Sweden also is sociologically very unusual in that when you do surveys of Sweden and their attitudes, the Swedes turn out to be, on one hand, people who value individual choice and liberty very highly. And on the other hand have very high levels of trust, comparatively speaking, in institutions and in the state. They do. They're much more... They wear... The image of Sweden as this incredibly left-wing place was correct up until... Economically, Annie, was correct up until about the 80s. Late 80s, yeah. And since then... I mean, I think Sweden, on certain economic freedoms, like how to start a business or ease of starting a business and contracts, is above places like America. Yeah, the Americans are coming back, but the Americans went through the last 20 years where they, they were con- just dropping down the freedom indexes regularly. And Sweden is regularly in the top 10. On on Sweden, there, 
the Swedish plan, if it works, will see their debts spike quite high and then come down. Everyone else's plan will see effectively waves of debts, lockdowns, then loosening of lockdowns, then the re-emergence of COVID-19, then more lockdowns, and the debts will basically be a wave function. No. In Sweden, it will be a spike, but that's entirely based on the idea that Sweden, that there is an immunity after you've been infected, which it looks like there may be, but we don't know how long it lasts, and we can't be really certain about that. And that, I think, is the big... If, if the Swedish plan is going to fall apart, it's going to fall apart on that. Now, it's worth... I would say still, even if the Swedish model works within certain parameters, and this is where I think I can see the future discussions in my opinion, missing the point. It's possible that it worked in Sweden, but it may also be possible that we had to do what we did in Ireland, that what worked in Sweden would not have worked here. That is also possible. I did see I was looking at Swedish news on Sunday, and they were saying that um, they had had 29 deaths in the last day. Hmm. I think at the time we were reporting about 40 deaths. I think on Monday yeah. we had 77, but some of those were spread over the mm. week or the previous week, and for some reason they hadn't been logged. Yeah. But the Swedish are saying they think they've actually hit their peak as well. But if their idea works, they won't get second or third waves, or they'll get much reduced ones because people will uh, will have picked up an immunity to it. They're actually also reopening a lot of their factories from, I think, this week. Yeah, Volvo. Volvo are opening up again this week. Um, I mean, that ties into... I mean, have you seen... Did you see Pascal's... Um, this is what the economy will look like announcement? Yeah. It was something like a 10% contraction in the economy with a 22% unemployment rate. Yes. Which, being unemployed, is significantly better than being dead uh, in the short term. In the short term? Whereas Pascal is saying this will take two years to come out of. So if it turns out in the end that all of Europe has destroyed its own economy, and in about a year and a half when the memory of this has faded, public perception of what was done may not be so popular if Sweden now, has bounced back. I think we should be slow. I mean, we should be slow to use... There are people out there talking about the destruction, the complete destruction of economies, destruction of our society and social fabrics now. I think we should be slow to use language like that. I think this is, we can be sure, this is going to cost a lot of money. It may then go on to significantly damage our economies. I think we're a little bit off. You know, 40% of the population of Italy, I think, died in the great, in the bubonic plague in the 14th century. But the economy survived. Damaged, badly. But they still went on ahead and had the Renaissance. I don't think this is... Now, that's it's also true, which we won't go into now, but other bad news about viruses and mutations, this may turn out to be far more difficult and problematic even than it looks now. But, I mean, we've got to keep something for the next show, Michael. Yeah, and speaking of which, and this is for the next show, uh, if we're talking about the economy, it, will it be an economy worth having when the Soviet Republic of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil has finally been established with their constitutional referendum coming up 
to take away the right to private property. Yeah, yeah. I'm more concerned about the fact that we seem to... There are certain times you want to come behind the government to a certain degree and support them, and a pandemic is to one degree, I, one of listen, them. Listen, I think... I I just wanted to make a point there because on that, sorry. For the kind... I think it is inevitable <clears throat> that you get some kind of what people have called Green Jersey Syndrome, Wave the Flag Syndrome, in a situation like this. Because if you don't, it won't work. Unless people are actually psychologically bought into the idea we're all in this together and we're all making an effort. And I think there's a very decent reason that before we felt scared and out of control. Now we do things, and if we do things, we can control our destiny and we have some control over our lives. So people are going to be suspicious and hostile of people picking and making criticisms and being unnecessarily (coughs) off message. That's understandable. But that will only last so long. Yeah, also, I mean, yes, whatever about putting on the green jersey to some degree, we've now gotten to a point of wearing the green jersey where people will look at Ireland's death rate and go, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's not our fault. Or that's not yeah. the result of policies. We, we're just better at counting yeah, we're, we're just than really, any of these really other good. highly advanced countries, which can assuredly count. And perhaps it may be... The problem there is if you don't... If the government won't admit it has made any mistake, and neither the public nor the press will admit they've made any mistake, they will make another mistake of a similar size. Because there's no oversight at all. Yes. And we've already seen this government say it doesn't need to go before the doll, because it wasn't voted for by the doll, which was, I mean, stupid, just as a strategic thing to do. Although I'm sure very personally satisfying for people. So there needs to be some degree of oversight. And I mean, if, if, if the listener hasn't, I recommend you watch the press briefings with the HSE and Tony Hulan and see how journalists are treating the HSE and Tony Hulan. And uh, I don't think anyone could watch that and go, these are people who have to explain what they're doing. Or under any pressure. Just, I, just to finish up with one slightly diversionary observation. You know, one of the realities is now everybody is working with mathematical models and predictive models that are all being designed by men, and I'm sure women far, far cleverer than I who understand these things. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. It's absolutely true. But the fact is. Sometimes models are just wrong in this plain, wonderful way. There was a thing, Gary, I don't know if you're old enough to remember long, long ago. There was a thing called the Hubbard Peak. And the Hubbard Peak was an analysis of the global reserves of crude oil. And it was about the prediction of when there was going to be peak oil. And peak oil was the point at which we had reached the highest level of possible production of crude oil across the world. Oh, yes, peak oil. And the, part, the thing was... How that quaint once, that seems now. Once you had reached peak oil, the graph was not... was I suppose, maybe a bell curve or maybe... A, what any, the point was that once you hit peak oil, the slide down afterwards was dramatic and terrible. 
And the thing was, we were going for peak oil. I think at one stage, peak oil was going to happen in 1997. Then peak oil was going to happen sometime in the 2000s. Well, I don't know. But do you know how much a barrel of oil costs now, Gary? Um, it depends where you buy it. I saw some of the the American markets. It was up to uh, ooh, the uh, dizzying heights of minus $54. <laughs> really? Minus fifty. See, I want. That's to a know. point where you're just looking at the barrel itself and being like, "Oh, there's some good metal in that." <laughs> yeah, I want. I have been trying online to find out where I can buy this oil and put it in my shed because I think eventually your know, things will come back. Maybe two years, maybe ten. Who knows? But eventually, fifty thousand barrels of oil will be worth money again. And if I can buy it for minus fifty four dollars, I'll put it in the shed. But it, it's very hard for the, the layman. As usual, Gary, they're keeping it for themselves. And I'm sure it's the Masons and the Jesuits and the Zionists. But my point is that, you know, sometimes these things go wrong. And in the case of peak oil, I suppose, well, fracking has been a large part of that. Uh, also, just the discovery of what they call the elephant fields. The last, there was great, well, they, these elephant, these huge fields, they found one in Saudi Arabia. I think it was in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was a, that was the last elephant field that would ever be found until around five or six years ago, they started drilling off the coast of Brazil in a place where it had been confidently said that the geology, no, you won't find oil there, under the, the salt crusts in the, in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Brazil. And bang, they'd hardly been pot- prodding around until they, f- they hit an elephant field. It's now believed that maybe lots more of those off the coast of Brazil and off the coast of Angola. So whatever is happening anyway, we're not going to run out of oil anytime soon. So that's good news, even though I don't know, I genuinely don't know what it means. Have you noticed, this, by the way, is also a terrible news story. In the context of, uh, for the first time in my lifetime, oil being really, really cheap is an economic disaster. Yeah, although it, yeah, it does well, present it, some interesting options that wouldn't have been workable before. Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you could do things with oil that you could never have afforded to do before, whatever those things might be, I can't imagine. It's bad news economically for OPEC, I'm sure. And it is a symptom of a very dire economic reality. But I don't see that it in itself. I mean, I can't anything. imagine Saudi Arabia is having a terribly good time today. No, no. And I suppose if you wanted to be cheerful and upbeat about it, you could say that the collapse of the oil prices across the Middle East in these countries, which are many of them already overextended in their spending, could lead to destabilisation of the political situation there. And that's always good news. I mean, it's always great to see some political destabilisation followed by a power vacuum and a crippling civil war. Much like Libya. In the Middle East, yeah. Because the Middle East, you know, it's such a dull place. Nothing ever happens there. Nothing bad ever came out of the Middle East. So that's something we can look forward to in the future as well. Mm. A brighter future. The Middle East on fire. I mean, it would give us something else to talk about other than COVID-19. So, I mean, I'd be all up for a small regional war. Then again, as you said, COVID rates down in that part of the world seem to be fairly low. Yeah, yeah. Any uh, increasing but low. Um, I'm unsure if that's if that's a temperature thing or if that's just that it got there later or they're more spread out or, or whatever reason. Maybe it's time to release the listener back into the wild. I think so. We will be back on Friday. The Ethan Gutman interview on Chinese organ harvesting is premiering on YouTube at 7.30 tomorrow. Um, So that should be good fun. 
premiering basically means it'll go out live at that time and you can watch and comment on it as if it was a, um, a live TV broadcast. So you can chat with your friends in chat as he regales you with price lists on organs. Yeah, it's a, it's another cheery, cheery stuff. We're doing a lot of cheery, cheery stuff these days. I've got to make sure I can never go to China. <laughs> okay. And on that note, we'll wish you a good week. Stay safe, mind yourselves, and we'll be back at the weekend. All the best.